Please take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to go ahead and finish out this chapter. But it really has been a great chapter where we've seen Jesus and just some great interactions that he has had with different people. You remember that in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus was addressing a problem with the Pharisees and the scribes where they came to Jesus and they were asking him why his disciples weren't washing their hands, why they weren't following this tradition that had been passed down, that they should wash their hands before they had their dinner. So really what these scribes and Pharisees were doing, and as we noted a couple weeks ago, they were being legalistic, right? They were imposing law, they were imposing rules onto the disciples of Jesus that weren't the commandments of the Lord. They weren't found in the Bible. And so they were being legalistic by imposing man-made rituals onto the disciples. And so Jesus handles these guys quite swiftly and he proves to them that really what's going on in their own lives is that they're willing to break the commandments of God that are written down in God's word, but they were unwilling to break the man-made traditions that they had been following. And then last week, the kind of transition, the chapter transitioned a little bit, where Jesus was interacting with this Gentile woman, this non-Jew, over her demon-possessed daughter. And we compared the encounter of the Pharisees and the scribes with the encounter of this woman with Jesus. Remember again that those Pharisees and scribes had come to Jesus in their own pomp and in their own understanding and arrogance and pride, seeking to impose those traditions onto his disciples. But this woman, this, this Gentile woman who really hadn't even known God, comes to Jesus in such wonderful humility. Uh, so she here is a Gentile knowing that she's not the focus of his ministry, yet begging for just, for just a crumb, for just a piece of mercy from the son of David. And in his great love and compassion, of course, Jesus not only gave her a crumb and helped her in little ways, he helped her in an extravagant way by pulling the demon, the, the demon from her daughter. And one of the significant things that we've been noting as we've gone through this chapter is that Jesus is in Gentile territory. So he is no longer in the area of Capernaum where we often see him. He is often Tyre and Sidon, then he moves away from Tyre and Sidon, where we'll see this morning, often to the east of Galilee, which again is going to be Gentile territory. So the people that he's dealing with, by and large, are not Jews, they are Gentiles. And what we're going to see this morning as he interacts with these Gentiles is really the same thing that we saw last week in his mercy toward them. We're going to see this week his compassion being continued toward the Gentiles. But when you consider those two concepts of of his mercy toward this woman who had the demon-possessed daughter and the compassion of the Christ that we're going to see this morning, as you consider mercy and compassion, they're really in the same vein, aren't they? they? They can't be separated from one another. Even in the book of Lamentations, it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. So the Lord's mercy is what keeps all of us from actually being consumed. God's mercy alone is what is holding all of us back from receiving the punishment that we are all due. And this great mercy is born out of His compassion. His compassion is never failing. And we sing about that, but isn't that encouraging to know? That the compassion of God is never failing to you. That His mercies and His compassions are consistently being poured out onto you as His child and even as a Gentile child of God. But look here this morning 
In Matthew chapter 15, we're going to begin reading in verse 29. Jesus went on from there, walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. And the great crowds came to him, bringing, them, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they should faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So Jesus is continuing along in this Gentile region on the east of Galilee, and he sits down on this mountain. And we've seen this kind of thing before from Jesus, particularly in Matthew 5, where Jesus is about to preach the Sermon on the Mount. He goes to this mountain, and he sits down, and he begins to teach. But in this circumstance, it's not his teaching that is necessarily emphasized, but in fact, it's his healing power. So he sits down on this hill and these crowds begin to gather around him and they're bringing all kinds. They're bringing lame people, mute people, blind people and so forth to Jesus. In fact, it says, and many others. There were so many kinds of maladies that Jesus is dealing with on this day that Matthew doesn't even take the time to write them down. And in verse 30, it just very simply, matter-of-factly says, and he healed them. It's just very simple. I mean, it's almost becoming commonplace. This might be a little bit of a ridiculous illustration, but it's kind of like a, a really awesome Tom Brady. Um, so Tom Brady, every Sunday he goes out there and every Sunday he goes out and he performs to his maximum capability. He rifles that ball in. I mean, he's threading the knee. I mean, he's doing all of that stuff, right? And and the greatest quarterback to ever live, right? He just goes week after week after week, and he does an excellent job doing this. And frankly, sometimes as a fan, it might be easy to sit back and say, you know what? That's just what Tom does. That's just how good he is. He just does it week after week. How many are not Patriots fans here? Uh, Well, there's the door. So, but he does it great week after week after week. And we see Jesus. It's almost week or week after week where we come on Sunday mornings and we just see him heal and heal and heal and heal. And it can almost get to the point of what? Okay, th- this is great. He's healing. But don't lose sight of the, how incredible this is. Let, let's not let our eyes just glide over those few words and he healed them. This is an incredible truth. And we've noted it over and over that there isn't anybody who comes to Jesus that he cannot heal. And these blind and crippled and mute Gentiles would not be the exception. But I want you to notice what his healing work does in verse 31. The crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. 
Is this not how it should always be? That the work of God should produce the wonder of God within us and should cause us to glorify God. See, again, sometimes it's so easy for the work of God to become dull to our eyes. I've been totally guilty of hearing this. You talk with missionaries that are experiencing some great revival, or even in other parts of New England, there really is, seems to be, um, I've heard of a, a, a revival lately, or just people coming to Christ over in Rutland, Vermont, and just people coming and coming and coming, getting saved and trusting in Christ. And it's very easy to say, back, wow, that, that's great. That's really good. No, that, that's tremendous. Or when God is doing something in your own life and He is growing you in different ways, this has to cause us to wonder over over God. Like when God saves somebody in your family or even when God saves your child and, and they desire the things of God and they desire the Word and they want to be baptized. There are so many ways in which God is growing us. That's really one of the wonderful things about being part of a church family and being so knitted closely together. Where we can look at each other's lives and say, man, you've grown since a year ago. You've changed. God is making you more and more like Jesus. And all of this should cause us to wonder. We should wonder over the work of God. The people here, when they see all of the work of Jesus causing these lame people to walk and the blind to see, they are are in wonder. And it causes them to glorify God. Look there again in verse 31. And they glorified the God of Israel. These Gentiles were experiencing firsthand the great power of Christ, which pushed them to glorify the God of Israel. And that is an incredible statement. Again, think of just these pagan outlying cities and countries, not knowing the God of Israel. Certainly, maybe hearing of his work, hearing some of the truth, but not knowing him in a general sense, never worshiping him. They certainly would have worshipped their own gods and so forth. But never would have they have glorified the God of Israel. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The true and living God. The creator God that we worship here this morning. They did not experience the worship and the glorification of God. But here, upon seeing the work of Jesus, they gave God glory together. And if we have trusted in Christ. And if we have been healed of our own spiritual afflictions. And what, was, what must we do? Give God glory. It's a great, great privilege. And so here Jesus is. He's healing these massive amounts of people. It's not recorded, but he no doubt is spending time teaching the people. Our Lord isn't interested in, in healing just for the sake of healing. He's couple, he couples, as we see in the book of Matthew, He couples His healings with interactions. He couples the healing with teaching and so forth. But the text indicates that he has been with the people for several days and that they hadn't had anything to eat. And so surely Jesus would have been exhausted at this point, spending so much time with these people at three days, not having anything to eat. But in verse 32, look what he says. I have compassion on the crowd. So the people saw his miracles. They wondered. They glorified God. Jesus sees the people, he feels compassion, and he's going to feed them. And I don't know about you, but every time I see that Jesus has compassion, it just stops me in my tracks. Reading along, and and Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on these people. Particularly in a passage like this, where he is not having compassion 
on his own people. These are not Jewish people that he is feeling compassion for. These are Gentile people. We've seen it several times. For instance, in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or he also said this, when he went to shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. We have a compassionate Christ. When was the last time that you saw a crowd or you saw a group of people, saw a person, and you felt genuine compassion for them? You see, compassion doesn't come out of a selfish or a self-interested heart. Selfish people are not compassionate people. But what I love about Jesus and what I love about watching other people who are compassionate is that their compassion doesn't just stay contained. Their compassion motivates them and pushes them to action. True compassion, real live compassion in somebody does not simply produce some sort of feeling or just produce pity and leave it at that. True compassion pushes one to action. I've mentioned in the past that uh, back in 2009, I had the opportunity to go to the country of Turkey for five weeks. And we spent the first four weeks in Istanbul uh, trying to make, in, you know, have interactions with people, uh, build relationships with individuals in order to uh, give them the gospel. And then, then the, the fifth week, we actually um, went and took a tour of the seven churches of Revelation, those locations. But on one of the last days, and it might have even been the last day, I was walking with two of the people uh, in Istanbul from our team, and there was this commotion that just shot up all of a sudden that was coming off from the left side. And this was really an, an incredibly, this was really a populated area. There were people walking all over the place, but there was this commotion over here on the left in this telephone booth area, and it was a, a man abusing a woman. And it, it ended very quickly, um, at least of what we saw. And the man and the woman, they walked off quickly from the scene. And within a few seconds, we found a couple police officers and we com- conveyed the best we could. Hey, of course, there's a language barrier there. They don't speak English. We didn't speak Turkish. And so we're trying to convey, hey, this guy was beating on this woman. They end up going and they were talking to them. They spent, they were few hundred yards off or whatever and they were talking to them and I'll never forget what happened when those two police officers came back uh, basically the motion that one of them had he pointed to his ring finger and basically shrugged in other words they couldn't do anything about it we as Americans of course we couldn't do anything about it that would have caused a really bad problem But even the cops there couldn't do anything about this man beating this woman simply because they were married. And those are the kinds of moments that make your heart break. If you don't have compassion for that woman, even considering now, where is she? Is she still in that same kind of a situation dealing with that? And there are going to be times like that and other situations where we see somebody who maybe is blind and we can't heal them and we can't help them. We have compassion and we would love to help them in some sort of way, but we can't do it. But you know, the opposite is far more often true. Where we have compassion for somebody, maybe, and we don't do anything about it. Where we see a situation where we could help and we don't help. But here Jesus is. Imagine not having 
any kind of thing holding you back where you could heal anybody. Where you could be filled with compassion and you could assist somebody financially and just help them completely out of the hole that they're in. Or again, somebody who has a serious malady and just be able to totally heal them. And here Jesus says, this is exactly what he is doing. He is not inhibited. He is able to have compassion and heals everybody who comes to him. And does that not thrill you? That we have a Christ who has had compassion on us. That he has seen us in our own spiritual blindness. That he has seen us as spiritually lame. And he has seen us hungry. And he has felt compassion on us. And he has fed us. And he has healed us through the cross. Romans chapter 9 says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And if you are a believer here this morning, it is because God has had compassion upon you. And almost precisely like he fed the 5,000 back in chapter 14, here he feeds 4,000 or more with seven loaves of bread and a few fish, all because of his compassion. Look there again at verse 35. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. This is another astonishing feeding that Jesus does here. Those who ate were 4,000 men. Some of you know what it's like to feed a couple teenage boys at the same time. Never mind 4,000 men who literally haven't eaten in three days. Can you imagine the amount of food that these people would have eaten? Not to even mention the women and the children. But Jesus takes this food, he prays over it, and he begins breaking it, handing it to all of his disciples, and his disciples take the food and begin to dispense it all to the people. And then when it's all said and done, they take up seven full baskets of broken pieces of fish and loaves. Many of you are going to take dad out for lunch or dinner tonight. And you'll take dad maybe to his favorite steakhouse or whatever he likes for food, which is um, whatever he likes, steak, whatever, steak and potatoes, him. Um, and if he doesn't finish his food, what's he going to do? Which is probably unlikely. He'll probably finish his food. But if he doesn't finish his food, he'll put, take his food and he'll put it in a styrofoam container and he'll bring it home, put it in the fridge, and he'll take it to lunch to work the next day, right? And when he gets to work the next day, when he opens up that styrofoam container, is he going to expect more food to be there than there was when he put it in there? But that's exactly what goes on here. Jesus takes these loaves and these fishes. He breaks them and gives it to all the people. And then there's seven baskets full of food. It only started with like seven loaves of bread. How do seven baskets get left over? It doesn't make any sense. But this, again, is the great power of God. So again, imagine this scene. Thousands of people come to Jesus with their sick friends and relatives. Over time, they grow hungry and Jesus feeds them. So that at the end of the day, at the end of those three days, not one person walks away from Jesus unwell or unfed. Incredible. Not one person. Out of all the hundreds and the thousands of people that were there, not one person walks away unwell or unfed. And the last time that we saw Jesus do this back in chapter 14, we focused on his power and his compassion to heal and his power and his compassion to feed. But in light of this passage, I want to go a little bit of a direction, a little bit of a different direction and focus on really the theological dilemma that Jesus is problem or that he's dealing with. So why 
Are all of these people even sick to begin with? Why are they all sick? Why when he's going around in Israel, is he constantly having to heal people? And then he hops over and now he's in Gentile territory, dealing with demon possession, dealing with uh, sickness. Why? Why is all of this happening? To be clear, I'm not asking why people get sick in light of the decisions that they make. So why did a person have heart disease or lung cancer or skin cancer or liver disease or whatever? Much of that could have been held back had the person made different decisions. But the question we are considering is why theologically does somebody get sick? Ultimately, why is there even death? Sickness, of course, leads to our lack of health and our death. But why do we get sick in the first place? Why did all of these people get sick that Jesus was having to deal with? And I think that the very clear reason we get sick is because of sin. Death and pain and evil came into the world when Adam and Eve fell and disobeyed God in the garden. God created a perfect world. It was totally perfect. The plants and the animals and the oceans and all of that. And even the man and woman that he created. Everything was perfect. He placed them in this garden of Eden. It would have been incredible to see what that beautiful garden, hand grown by God, would have looked like. Incredible. But he created everything perfect. And in God's word, it says this in Genesis. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Adam and Eve were living in a totally perfect world. Before the fall, there was nothing that, that marred the creation or man. It was a beautiful, lush, food-filled place. And it was created to remain that way. God created it and called it very good. It was intended to remain good. But you know what isn't very good? is sin and illness and death and pain and hunger But as we all know, Adam and Eve ate of the tree that God told them not to eat, thus bringing death and sin to all men. This is very clear in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sin. So death came into the world through Adam. And as a result, death and even the processes that lead to death have now come into the world and have spread to every single person from Adam and Eve on. So everybody in this room right now, unless the Lord tarries, we are all going to die. None of us have a choice in the matter. We are all going to face death because of what happened in the garden. So if you want to know why disease and illnesses are in the world, it's because Adam brought sin into the world through his disobedience. But through Jesus, we see that he is healing and curing many of their diseases and illnesses, all of which are a result of the fall. So even when we see the the punishments that God handed down to Adam and Eve, he said that for Eve, she would surely, uh, the pain would be multiplied in her childbirth, right? So even now, there are many complications and pains and problems that happen in, in childbirth that originally were never meant to be. And God told Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So in other words, Adam had taken freely from the tree that he was told not to take from. 
Um, and because he did that, he would now have to painfully work for the food that he would eat for the rest of his life. So again, God creates this lush garden. Eat of all of the trees that you want. But don't eat of this one tree. Adam goes ahead and he eats of that one tree. And because he took and he disobeyed, he would have to work and he would have to toil for the rest of his life in pain for the food that he would eat. So as a result of the fall, we have pain in giving birth and pain in reaping food from the ground. So, pain in producing life and pain in sustaining life. And is that not even what we see in our passage this morning, particularly with sustaining their life? They couldn't sustain their own lives. They, they couldn't feed themselves in this time, in, in this situation. They couldn't heal themselves. That's why they're coming to Jesus These people that Jesus is healing cannot sustain their own health. And even in this moment of hunger, after three days without food, they can't produce their own food. Only Jesus can sustain their physical well-being. Only He can undo that grip of the curse over these people that is so evident within this passage in Matthew. As Christians, we cannot do as Jesus did here. We cannot go to people and heal them of their diseases. We cannot feed the hungry by distributing loaves and fishes in this kind of a way. But what we can do is we can be filled with compassion toward other people and give them the greatest news that has ever been told in the gospel. We can tell them of the work of Jesus in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. How he has come to to free us and to undo parts of this curse that overwhelm all of us. The gospel is the only remedy for sin that is in the world. And that might seem simplistic, but it is true. The results of sin are evident all over the place. The 11 o'clock news is simply a rehashing of that day's sin. Because sin came into the world, we have school shootings and nightclub shootings. Brothers and sisters, we live in an obviously corrupt world with massive tragedies. But do you realize and remind yourself that it was never supposed to be that way? The encouraging thing is that it won't always be this way. There will always be justice. Right will always be done and the wrong will fail. Jesus comes into the world as the second Adam and over and over again he's being presented with the results of the fall. The sin of the Pharisees. The lack of faith in the disciples. The massive amounts of illnesses and hunger. But what is so clear is that there's no result of the curse that he can't handle. So if you're a sinner and you come to Jesus... He can forgive you. If you're blind, He can heal you. Those who come to Jesus in faith have aspects of the curse that are undone. And the last enemy that will be defeated, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that He will defeat is death. And which one of us here today doesn't worry or at least think about death? But there will come a day where you and I will not have to worry about it anymore. In fact, Sunday school this morning fit right well with with this sermon. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65. I want to look at two passages in closing. But Isaiah 65, again, the pain and the sin and the struggle and the considerations of death and the considerations of what we're going to eat for a meal, it will not always be that way. But Isaiah 65 and verse 17 says this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. 
but be glad and rejoice forever that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children in calamity. For they shall be of the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. And their descendants with them. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 21. Where we also get a great glimpse of what this uh, new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. But Revelation chapter 21 I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I cannot wait for that experience. Where the mourning and the crying and the pain will be known as former things. The things we mourn over, like the the shootings and the abuse and the hardships, will be considered former things. The things that we cry over, like death and stress and anxieties. The pain that we experience, both physically and emotionally. All of these things will be considered former things. They will not be present when we are in that state. Although you may suffer now, it will not always be. Your frail body will one day be as Jesus' glorified body is. God is making and will finally make All things new. What he's going to ultimately do is he's going to restore what was lost. Wickedness will be eradicated. And you will live in the radiance of his glory for all of eternity. We are going to go back to what was originally supposed to be. We are going to go back to Eden. Matthew 15 is an incredible chapter. The Gentile woman with a demon-possessed daughter takes care of it. The Gentile crowds bringing their blind and their lame and all of the others, he heals them. The Gentile crowds who have gone hungry, he has compassion and he feeds them. Something remarkable is happening. Jesus is displaying his authority over the curse that has brought so much wickedness and death into our lives. But one day, God will wipe away our tears from our eyes. And all of the good and evil that we have come to know will be considered former things. And the curse will be reversed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this fact that you came. And there was no part of that curse that you could not handle. All of those people who came to you on these days. Totally healed. And totally fed. You met their needs. And Lord, we pray this morning. That you will continue to sustain us. Life is hard. And trials are hard. And all of the tragedy that we see in the world. Is hard to explain. 
But we know where it has come from. We know that because of sin, all of this tragedy has entered into the world. But Lord, we pray that you'll glorify yourself through it all. Lord, give us the ability to take these tragic things that surround us and show your greatness through it. And even how you remedy the soul and how you save and heal us spiritually. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to become good stewards of your gospel as we seek to share it. And as your gospel goes forth, we look forward to seeing how you continue to make all things new. We look forward to that day where we are with you for all eternity, not inhibited by sin and not feeling the weariness and the brokenness of our bodies, but with glorified bodies, praising and living with you for all eternity. We look forward to that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.